0: John chapter 4. Redemption in John's Gospel. I'm going to read verses 1 to 26 just to set the context of the verses that will actually be the source of not only this sermon but the one next week. This is a, a great story that we get to see Jesus... Go after His sheep in Samaria. Intentionally go there. Not go the normal way, but intentionally go there and save and sanctify His elect who were there. John 4.1 Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And He had to pass through Samaria. He could have gone around like everybody else, but He had to pass through because He had people there. He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey... Yes, Jesus got tired. True human nature, remember. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about twelve noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria, for the Jews considered them unclean, would have nothing to do with them. The Jews, it says here, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus reveals her heart, or reveals that He knows her heart. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman said, answered Him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. Here comes the discomfort. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to Him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, so I'm going to change the subject. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Suddenly she wants to talk about worship. As do I. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, lovingly, but firmly, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And bottom story short, because of God's grace, she believes that. She's filled with joy. She leaves her stuff behind and runs back into the town. A woman of ill repute, but crying out that the Messiah had come and by God's grace people believe. they come back. He stated, there's a lot of people converted. God is at work in the undeserving to reconcile them to Himself and to make them worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. Your spirit must apply your word, must do your work in our hearts. I certainly can convert or sanctify no one. We pray that you would be at work blessing the preaching of your word that Christ you would speak to your people in a living voice, that the Spirit would take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts, making us more like Christ than we were when we came through the door, maybe even calling us to faith in Christ, just like this Samaritan woman. Do a work that only you can do in me, through me, in us. May we treasure... You treasure Your Word and be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus said in the presence of His opponents, quoting from Isaiah twenty-nine, thirteen: This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines, The commandments of men. Notice what he says to his adversaries about worship. That their worship is vain. Why? Because it does not flow from the heart and it is not done according to his word or his commandments. And at all costs, we want to avoid that vain, false, unacceptable worship. In America, we kind of have this mindset that it's an anything-goes thing. And we've seen, and I would point you back to previous sermons because I can't repreach them, that worship is our highest priority, that God has told us how to do it, and deviating from the way He's told us to do it is dangerous. So I'll point you back to those sermons. But we're in the midst of a four-part mini-series, hopefully based on the Word of God, inspired by the documentary Spirit and Truth that I've encouraged you to go watch. The first sermon, like I said, was highest priority. The second one, last week's sermon, was death by worship. It was another anti-Osteen sermon. Um, <laughs> it's da- worship can be dangerous when we substitute our ways for God's ways. And we showed that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even in Corinth, people abusing the Lord's Supper, not partaking, not worshiping the Lord His way through His Supper in Christ that some of them were sick and had died. That's New Testament reality as well as Old Testament reality. But go listen to last week. I can't preach that sermon again. And today we're zeroing in on the content of worship. And this sermon could be a whole series So. Um, I'm, I'm touching the high points. But we're zeroing in on what Jesus called worship in spirit and truth. And that is the title of the video, Spirit and Truth. We'll take two weeks to break down that one little phrase. What does Jesus mean by worship in spirit and truth? And this week I'm turning it around and dealing with truth first. And then spirit next week. So this week we're going to talk about worship in truth and hopefully we will see main point that true worship is worship that is God-centered and word-shaped. So let us offer this kind of worship to God. Let Him shape how we worship. Let His word shape how we worship. Not our preferences, not our desires, not what the community wants, But our main question in this series is how does God want to be worshipped? That's the question we're trying to answer. And look with me back. We read the story, but look back in verse 23 as Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Look first at the creation of true worship. He says in verse 23, at the second part of the verse, The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What people? What kind of people? The kind that worship Him in spirit and truth. So He He knows they're out there. And He's just looking for to find these people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. He's looking for those who are seeking Him and He'll respond to that seeking. My wife's making a face. She's indicating I'm off track here. No. How does He seek Him? How does He seek them? Through His Son who came to seek and save the lost. He is the seeker, not us. I've said this before, we want seeker-sensitive worship. But God's the only one doing the seeking, so we want to be sensitive to Him and have worship that lines up with His Word. Listen to me, pause a minute, look at God's Word, hear it, let it shape what you think. This may be contrary to what some people believe, but, but Paul, as he's making his case, and we're going to study through Romans, that the Jews are guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the God. The Gentiles are guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, he says. Look in verse 10. As it is written, and he's summing up in that section what all of Scripture, the, what we call the Old Testament, the only Scripture they had at that point, that, except for the part that was being written, says this. There are none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Now, embrace this. No one seeks God. Unless God is at work in our hearts by His grace, we will not seek Him. We run from Him. We want to shape Him into what we want God to be. We want Him to sign off on our desires and plans. But no one will truly seek the true and living God His way unless He's at work in them. Look what it says and believe it. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We are not born true worshipers. We are born worshipers. We're always worshiping something. You get that straight? You're like, well, I don't have any little statues I'm bound down to. No, you are the statue probably. <laughs> or it's your house or your car or your chick or your money. Or, or We're not born true worshipers of the true and living God. We're born worshipers of self and creature and stuff below the sun. We need grace. We need change. And John 4 is a beautiful story of Christ seeking out His sheep, of Christ being patient and loving and kind to reveal Himself to sinners, the Spirit being at work to draw them to faith, to call them to faith, to change them from those who don't seek for God to those who do. And just as He intentionally went through the unclean land, the place the Jews didn't go. He intentionally went to Sychar. He intentionally went to that well. He intentionally went to that woman on that day because she was one who had been given to Him before the foundation of the world. She was one of His sheep. She was one of His people along with the rest of the people you see come out of that city to Him if you read that story. Jesus intentionally goes to Samaria to gather His elect and to make them true worshipers. Ephesians 1, we were chosen. Listen, some of us don't like this. I understand. I didn't like it at first. I fought against it, but I had to submit to the Word of God. We were chosen before the foundation of the world because of His great grace to us. And He doesn't just choose us, and He doesn't just bring us to faith, but He sanctifies us and grows us in faith. Grace. And he intentionally went into Samaria to this woman and to these people and gathered them and talked to them about worship. In four verses, worship is mentioned ten times. You think there's a message there? Ten times. True worshipers are created by God as we see happening in this woman's life. She's going about her daily routine. Then Jesus shows up. Then the good news shows up. He is the Messiah. He opens her heart. She's a new creature in Christ now. She runs to tell everybody that the Messiah has come. The Redeemer has come. The Savior has come. Have you heard that good news? Are you trusting in that Savior this morning? has Jesus come to you and revealed Himself to you? Not that you've seen Him or had a physical experience with Him, but somehow, in some way, the Gospel has come to you. You've heard the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. The God-Man. The only begotten Son of God who came and was born in a manger in humility under His own law. Why? To fulfill it. To fulfill all righteousness because we had broken it. See, we need righteous standing before God if we're going to be accepted by Him. So Jesus fulfills all righteousness, succeeding where Adam had failed, fixing what Adam and Eve had broken, fixing what we had broken, which is His law. You know, you can't be accepted by God without a perfect record of righteousness. You can't be accepted by God unless your record reads that you have kept God's law in thought, word, and deed perfectly. He's not grading on the curve. He's not going to look at Hitler and then you and go, okay, you okay. No, he's going to look at his law and you and say, how do you measure up? And if your record is not spotless, you don't measure up. Don't look at people. Don't look at other people to decide if you're righteous. Yeah, I know I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as she is. Christ is the only one who fulfilled all righteousness, fulfilled His law in thought, word, and deed. And then, as we sang, He took, He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one. One of my favorite verses. Not that he was inherently sinful, but he took our guilt. He took our debt. He went. Why did Jesus get nailed to the cross? Because he just didn't see it coming, was a victim. They snuck up on him and got him? No, he went there willingly. He set his face to go there. He told his disciples he was going there. He told them exactly what was going to happen. They couldn't hear it yet. But the scripture says that he died for our sins. He was crucified. And He died physically, but more than than that, the suffering. He took the wrath of God due His people and drank that cup dry. What did He say before He left that cross? It is almost finished. It is 99% done. It's mostly paid in full, but there's something left for you to do. We act like that, don't we? It is finished. That word to that means paid in full. Debt paid. Debt paid. He went through the grave, defeating death, and on the third day raised from the grave, seen by over five hundred people at one time, ascended into heaven, reigning. Sitting at the hand, the, the, the seat of authority, the right hand of majesty, his gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth to gather all of His people, and then he's coming again and it's going to be too late. If you're not in him by then, but death it may come before then. Are you ready? How do I get ready, preacher? For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son. He gave his son to live, to die, to be raised. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever is good enough, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Elsewhere He teaches and Paul teaches in Romans that it's a free gift. The wages of sin is death. Physical death and spiritual death. You should be very afraid of death if you're not trusting in Jesus because you don't just end when physical death happens. Then you face God. There's a point of demand to die once and then the judgment. And eternity is based on you or it's based on Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning? If you are trusting in Jesus, that's because God has worked that in you. If you think the gospel is foolishness, He said you would say that. So don't think that's good news. Trust Christ this morning. And if you do trust Christ, what we were singing about is true of you. Forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation. Better than that, new creation. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are united to Him. And His record of perfect obedience becomes ours. Our sin being washed away, our record being cleansed, literally obliterated on the cross with Him. Trust in Jesus. And you will be a new creature. Creature? That's a mixture of creation and creature, I think. I'm not sure what happens in my head. You too will be a new creation. A new creature. With a new hope. Delivered from the fear of death. Purpose in life. Listen, and it's not boring. Joy. Unshakable. Even through tears and disappointment. You get a new heart that now wants to glorify God. A new heart that receives instruction from Jesus. Receives correction from Jesus. Just like this woman, Jesus corrects her misunderstandings about worship, shows her a new and better way. Are you willing to be corrected about your misunderstandings about worship? There are sacred cows out there these days about worship. There are new sacraments. Music is a new sacrament. It's what we're always used to. Don't ever. If you ever, if you, but we've never done it that way. Don't be saying things like that. Just ask one question: How does God want to be worshipped? Is it biblical? Are they telling me what is biblical? Look in this text. Second point: the content of true worship. In verse 23 and 24, we have some repetition. Jesus told her the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers stop. Look at that. What does that imply? There are true worshipers and there are false worshipers. We don't want to say that, do we? We don't want to say anybody's doing it wrong. We certainly don't want to say we're doing it wrong. But there's true worship and false worship. There's vain worship and not vain worship. There's acceptable worship, Hebrews 12, and unacceptable worship. We've talked about that. And we saw how many people died. God doesn't always kill people when they worship Him falsely. Aren't you glad most of us wouldn't still be here? Probably all of us wouldn't still be here. But look what He says in 23 and 24. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in the way that feels right to them. In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In other words, those He seeks and saves He makes into worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him, look at that word, must worship in spirit and in truth. This week we're talking about worship in truth. Next week we'll talk about worship in spirit and hopefully bring things together. But look at what Jesus said. Don't miss this. This is what Jesus says. He's telling us what true worship is. And true worship is to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And this week we deal with truth. What is truth here? Later John says it this way. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. His Word is the truth. His Word is what God the Spirit uses to sanctify us, to call us to faith, and to grow us in grace, to make us more like Jesus. So worship worship in truth is worship that is according to truth or worship that is according to His Word. And certainly learning to worship God in a God-honoring way is part of our sanctification. What is sanctification but growth in grace, right? More and more faithfully living for Jesus. Less for sin, more for Christ. As we grow in grace, we grow into what we already are in Christ before the throne of God. Worship in truth. Sanctified by truth. The truth shaping, therefore, our worship. So how does the Word regulate worship? I mean, there's a lot of wars. We call them wars. They're not really wars. Come on. But there's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of discussion these days about worship. But you know what? It's not, it's not anything new. There's always been a lot of that. But how does God's Word regulate worship? What is worship in truth? And I want to I propose to you that if you don't let God answer that question... In light of the coming of Christ, then it's just judges. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. But how does God's Word shape worship? they have been at various answers down through the ages. I mean, I'll give you a few that sort of highlight some things. Y'all know we're a Reformed church, so Reformed Baptist, if you want to know more. Um, reform, that means believer's baptism, not that we're Southern Baptists or Independent Baptists or anything like that. It's a shame you have to make so many distinctions, but you do. But anyway, here's a few things that we've seen in history. And the first one I'll mention uh, you may have this on your bulletin, I'm not sure. I think so. The inventive principle of worship. This would be mainly represented by the Roman Catholic Church, which holds tradition and scripture together. And so, in the tradition, The church is free to establish the parameters of worship. That's why you get so many things in worship that you would never get if you just sat down and read your Bible in the Roman Catholic Church. And all Luther and Calvin were trying to do is reform the church. They didn't want to leave the church. They didn't want to get kicked out. They eventually were. But they they read the Bible in the original languages and they saw problems with the way the Roman Catholic Church understood justification, the way worship was conducted. They tried to point those out and it was not accepted. But many, many Protestant churches operate basically on this principle today and give no thought about it. It's just whatever we decide to do is okay. If you want dancing T-Rexes and Star Wars people jumping around on the stage and people diving into the baptismal pool, it's okay. You can do that. We can be inventive, creative when it comes to worship. I'm telling you, if God was still acting with strict justice, there would be a lot of dead folks around when we do stuff like that. He's acted enough to show us that His Word should govern our worship. But in the remore you had the inventive principle, just highlighting that. In the more reformed wing of the church, you had the normative principle. This is Luther. <clears throat> Luther's trying to hang on to as much as he can. Uh, he's not trying to leave the church and mean things like that. Uh, but the 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 normative principle s- uh, says that you may have in worship whatever God is commanded plus whatever is not strictly forbidden. So, if it's not forbidden, we can do it. You can see how easily that could run off the rails. Many things that were never in Luther's heart, people would use that sort of thinking to justify. But see, these two two principles de-emphasize the role of the Word of God in worship. Nobody's doing away with the Word of God. But they just how does, it, how does God want to be worshipped? Well, he's told us in his word. And if his word is our highest authority, then, then we'll submit to that. So Luther and Calvin disagreed on a lot of things. And, you know, Lord suffers one, worship is another. Uh, but the regulative principle of worship, uh, you might see RPW in literature, this is Calvin and following on in the reformed re- wing of the Reformation. Listen, let me, let's back up and say just because we got a lot of visitors. The Refor- Reformation was not the church uh, or the reformers inventing something new. It was them recapturing what scripture taught because they read the scriptures in the original language. They were part of a humanist movement. Don't think atheistic humanism. The the cry of the humanists in that day, there was both secular and religious humanists, was back to the sources. And so what they did was they learned the original languages and they went and read the original documents in a lot of fields, including Scripture. And when they did that, they saw, ooh, ooh, we got some errors on justification here. Ooh, we got some errors on worship. Ooh, we got some errors. So they were recapturing what Scripture teaches. They were not reinventing anything. When you hear reformation, think that, not making up something new. <clears throat> but the regulative principle of worship says that you may only do in worship what God has commanded in, in his word. The regulative principle emphasizes in it the instituted elements. Instituted by who? By God, by Jesus. Those are the priority. In other words, God regulates His worship through His Word. Worship is prescribed and commanded, and the elements of worship are revealed. So the regulative principle of worship, which is the only place I think you can come out, if you listen to the first two sermons in this series, and if you see Nadab and Abihu and what they did, if you see the golden calf, if you see Ananias and Sapphira, if you see what's going on in Corinth, I think the clear and shouted message is: Don't mess with worship. Do it God's way. I think that's the clear and shouted message. And that's what God is teaching His church. He doesn't have to repeat Himself. He could have only killed someone once. And that would have been good enough to get the message across. Did people die because they worship falsely? Yes, in Old Testament and the New. Why do you think we're so careful with the Lord's Supper when we celebrate it? To worship in truth is... I believe, you can tell by, I believe the regulative principle of worship is the right conclusion. I think Calvin was right, and those that follow in his train are right. Listen, don't get all upset about me using John Calvin's name. You don't, most of you, I won't say you, most of you here probably do. Most people, when they start talking about Calvinism and berating it, don't even know what he taught. And there's this big old huge straw man that people like to knock down. Uh, the first step in, un, in, in refuting someone is to understand them. And if you haven't read him, I mean, he would, he would turn over in his grave thinking anything's named after him. He was an introvert. He wanted to be a quiet scholar. God has a sense of humor. But I think the reformed wing of the church got it right, and I think God's Word is what teaches us the regulative principle of worship. And this is what we looked at last time. Remember our question, how does God want to be worshipped? Bringing everything we've looked together so far. Listen, I'm hitting the high points. I hope I'm not confusing anybody. If you have questions, let me know. I'm not going to hate you if you hold another idea. Bringing everything together, though, I think God's Word teaches us that true worship is God-centered, word-shaped, word-saturated worship which if that's true it's going to be full of and centered on Jesus Christ who is the center of everything in the Bible. True worship is God-centered, word-shaped, word saturation. It's a humble receiving from God how he wants to be worshiped and then returning that to him expecting blessings. So according to the I got to move. According to the New Testament, what should worship look like? What should the Lord's day... Listen, this is another sermon. Oh, there's so much we should talk about. God still has a day of worship, and it's not Saturday. And it's not Friday. It's the first day of the week. Jesus said it as that. And the apostles follow the train and the Word teaches. It's what we call Sunday, the Lord's day. John uses that term in the book of Revelation as a possessive. It is the day that belongs to the Lord when He was in the Spirit on the island of Patmos. Yes, God still has a day. We'll talk about that more later. But what are the elements of worship? And this is just a summary. And I'm gonna, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you some references. But this is what New Testament worship should look like. The reading of the Word. 1 Timothy 4.13 And you can get this from me later because I, I do have to move. Oh, I'm putting it up there. Good. The reading of the Word, 1 Timothy 4.13. The preaching of the Word, which is primary, 2 Timothy 4.2. The singing of the Word, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. The praying of the Word. My Father's house is to be a house of prayer, Jesus said, Matthew 21.13. Seeing the Word. Isn't that a a neat way to say it? You know how we see the Word? Baptism and Lord's Supper. You want drama in the church? That's the drama we have. To baptize and have Lord's Supper. And there's a list of verses there. You can look up there and write them down if you want to. Giving. We see that in 1 Corinthians 16 to another other places. And here's on his day. All this done on his day. God is to be prioritized. On his day and in his way revealed by His Word. So read the Word, preach the Word, sing the Word, pray the Word, see the Word, respond to the Word on the day that He's called us together. Those are the elements, the things that are required by Scripture. Now certainly there's more to worship than the elements and people have made that distinction. There are the elements of worship and the circumstances. What are the circumstances of worship? Well, they're simply the things that facilitate us being able to do that. God didn't command us to have blue chairs that fastened together. He didn't command us to have soft chairs. You're welcome. <laughs> he didn't command us to have air conditioning. Or a building. He didn't tell us what time to meet. How long to meet. He didn't tell us how long to preach. I mean, Paul preached so long, people were falling out of windows. That's why we have you sit in chairs. So the the circumstances are the place, time, whatever left to the discretion of the elders, but the elements are things that are required that must be there and that we must not substitute. So this is a New Testament snapshot of worship in truth. It's both simple and beautiful, and more importantly, it's what God commands. Think about this. True worship. On the night He was betrayed, after He instituted the Lord's Supper. You have Lord's Supper. You have them singing together, psalms. So you have teaching and singing. Nobody was in there with any musical instruments or anything like that. True worship. You know, in the early church meeting in homes, there were no no altars. There were no stained glass windows. There were no, oh gosh, we've had people leave because we don't have stained glass windows. Probably better that they did. I don't mean to be mean about that, but they didn't have any stained glass windows. They didn't have any funny hats. They didn't have any drums. This view, I got to move on. I'm on a rabbit trail now. This view assumes the sufficiency of Scripture. What Jesus said sanctify them by your truth, the word is truth. Sufficiency, simply stated, is the Bible contains all that we need for determining what we must believe and how we are to live before God. Scripture is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Paul said to Timothy, his last letter to his beloved son in the faith, as as he's prepared him and continues to prepare him for ministry, he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable, stop. All Scripture... Is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. And profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work except worship. Every good work. Everything you need to know. Everything that needs to shape your ministry. Everything you need to teach, Timothy. And what you need to teach the church and have them live by, you have... In this inspired word, we we like the teaching part. We don't much like the reproof and correction part. And the training, you see what I'm saying? It's full orbed. And when it comes to worship, there's much teaching that we need, there's much reproof that we need, and correction that we need, and training in righteousness. But bottom line, worship in truth is worship according to truth. It is worship that is saturated by, with this and shaped with this because this is the Word of God. This is what God has given us to reveal Himself and us and what He's done for us in Jesus, saving us and what He requires of us on the basis of that. Let me just end with a couple of questions and objections and, and... Although God didn't tell me how long to preach, we do have a standard. I've, I've sort of already answered this one, though. What about dance, drama, and performance? Short answer is New Testament doesn't prescribe these things. God didn't tell us to do that. We dare not do what he's not told us to do. Some might say, yeah, but wait a minute. Psalm 149 says to let them praise His name with dancing. Look at that. Praise His name with dancing. There's a time to do that. And most of us need to isolate that to our living room when no one's there. Yeah. Beware of posting your dancing online. It never goes away. That psalm, the video points this out. This is not original for me. But that psalm also says, sing for joy on your beds. And it also says, let everyone have a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance. So I'm pretty sure God wouldn't also include in worship us to bring in beds to sleep on and praise God and sword fight while we're worshiping. Not everything that talks about praise is talking about corporate worship. And not everything that was done in the Old Testament is what we do in the New Testament in corporate worship. There's a time to praise God with a dance. There's a time to praise God you know, in a lot of things in individual life and worship that we wouldn't do in corporate worship because God hasn't commanded us in the New Testament in light of the fulfillment of the coming of Christ to do those things. New Testament worship, worship that is post-Christ coming, is different and much more simple than Old Testament worship. And it doesn't need the smells and the bells and the... Just as we no longer sacrifice sheep, we no longer use many of the Old Testament forms. New Testament worship is simpler and more Beautiful. So yes, we have drama. It's called baptism in the Lord's Supper. Is there ever a time to do a drama, an evangelistic event? Maybe, but not in corporate worship. Corporate worship is the time we gather to praise and worship God as God's people. Yes, the gospel will go forth, but it's not primarily an evangelistic event. And it's not to be shaped by what the community wants. What does God want? That's worship in truth. That's worship according to truth. New Testament. All right, here, I might as well go ahead and do this too. What about music? Music is helpful, but not necessary. And some of the best times of singing you'll ever have is when it's done congregationally, a cappella. And if you'll gather with some of those Presbyterians I went to seminary with and listen to them sing Psalm 95, a cappella, all in parts, you will cry. Sounds like you've gone to heaven. Music is a good gift, and and it is to be, we believe in music here. You want to help the music team? We'd love to have you. But not as a standalone, and not as a means of grace. Music's not something that we look to to work in our hearts. Jesus said, sanctify them by your music, by your truth. Your word is truth. Music is part of a song sometimes, but in New Testament worship, music is to accompany and enable the singing, not to dominate. Music is to accompany and benefit the singing, not drown it out. If you, if you are in the context of worship and you can't hear your neighbor sing, that's not the way God would have us do it. If you go into worship and, and you have to wear earplugs, that's not how God would have us do it. How do you know that, Jeff? You're just making this up. No, go read Ephesians 5.19. In fact, I better read that to you because some of you are looking at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. Part of being filled with the Spirit says this in verse 19 of, of Ephesians, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice there's a, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a vertical dimension of worship. There's also a horizontal dimension where we hear one another and are inspired by one another and taught by one another and encouraged by one another as we sing. We need to be able to Hear one another and sing with one another, and you, you folks, bless my socks off in your singing. And why? Because I can hear you. Isaac's not up here sliding on his knees in a solo, and (laughs) he'd never do that anyway. But there's a horizontal dimension that we lose if music gets out of bounds. Music done well and done rightly is a great gift of God. And it will help us sing and praise God. And it will all come together in worship of God. And it is part of New Testament worship. worship, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. But music for music's sake is not. And it's not a means of grace. Okay, off of music. What about smoke and light shows? <laughs> nope. We don't smoke in worship. You have to do that later. No. <laughs> Come on, lighten up. <laughs> worship. Listen, this is where we've gotten confused in the church. We've gone into seeker sensitive ways so that we've pulled the community to see what will bring the most people in. If you watch the video, you see this pastor zip lining into the pulpit. And he says, the proof is in the seats. What do you mean? It draws people. Yeah, well, so does Barnum and Bailey. And that's a whole lot better sometimes than some of this other stuff. We've confused worship with evangelism. Yes, we've confused being God-centered with being man-centered and giving people what they want. Listen to me. We've confused the church with the theater. And leave the entertainment to the theater. They do it better. But worship is not theater. It's not entertainment. Now listen, we should be joyfully enraptured with God. There should be joy and enjoyment of God in worship. But we're not, maybe you can tell, we're not focused on your enjoyment. We shouldn't be. See, New Testament worship is simple, God-centered, word-shaped. And it it can be done anywhere. Anywhere. We we need to stop seeing worship as entertainment. Is there a place for a Christian concert? Yes. Is it okay to go enjoy that? Yes. But that's not Lord's Day worship. That's not what he's told us to do on the Lord's Day. Have a stage and be loud and have a lot of show and people yes, you enjoy that. Enjoy it, but don't expect that. Don't confuse that with corporate worship. So music, rightly done, yes. Drama, yes. Lord's Supper, baptism. Smoking lights, just nope. In worship, lights, yes, but not a light show. You know what I mean. Am I trying to be narrow? Uh Uh-huh. But only as narrow as this is. So, as God arrested me with Acts 13, 48, when I was wrestling with the doctrine of election... And it said all those who were foreordained to eternal life believed and not the other way around. By His grace, had to submit to His word. Just ask that question. You go before the Lord. How do you want to be worshipped? What does your word teach, rightly interpreted, in light of Christ's coming? What does the New Testament say about how worship should look? Are these the correct elements of worship? Search me. Try me. Know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. How does God want to be worshipped? Jesus has told us we need to worship in spirit and truth. What is worship in in spirit and truth? It's it's God-centered, Word-filled, Word-shaped worship. It's very simple. It's very simple. The Word read, the Word preached, the Word sung... The Word prayed. The Word responded to on God's day. <clears throat> I love one of the quotes from the, from the video. And uh, it was Neil Stewart said this. He said, even just politeness would demand that I ask God how he would like to be worshipped. Isn't that true? It's his worship. God, how do you want me to do it? Even just politeness would demand that I should ask God how he would like to be worshipped. Because, and I catch this, because I don't have the right to approach my creator whom, I've, whom I have offended on my terms. What we saw from death by worship and the other things, we, we don't have the right to invent worship. What Nadab and Abihu did was innovate. Very simply, very small thing. They didn't take the fire from the altar. The Word teaches us to ask God how we want to be worshipped. We don't want to be like those who honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from them. And we don't want to be like the kind of people who substitute the Word or the opinion of man for the Word of God. We want to be the kind of people that Jesus says we must be if we're going to worship God. People who experienced his grace, people who love and trust him, people who are willing then to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we'll talk about the spirit, worship to me in spirit next week. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. All we want to do is what You want us to do. All we want to be is what You want us to be. We want to be like our glorious Savior. And we want to love and honor Him and follow Him well and rightly according to Your Word, Lord. You are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord Jesus. The only true Savior. And you said you have come to seek and save a people who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Please make us those people. Revive us. Renew us. Refresh us. In our love for you. In our devotion to you in our submission to you and to your word, that we might be a joyful, God-honoring people who live in light of the glorious gospel and take that gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray for those who are resistant to this kind of message that you would simply get them to look at your word. Maybe we're wrong on some things. Let us talk about it. Who those who don't care and think anything goes, Lord, Lord, reshape that. Those of us who have a conviction that we should worship according to your word, we freely admit we don't have it all figured out. None of us are glorified. So help us. Shape us by your word. Saturate us with your word. Make us people who love you and enjoy you and love your glory, and seek to live for it. People who are passionate about faith in Christ and getting the gospel right and getting it out. People who make us a people who the high point of our week is your day in gathered worship with your people around your throne. Make us people who worship you in spirit and truth. Make us people who love you, who love one another, who love our neighbor, and who are vessels, Lord Jesus, through which you work to call your people to yourself. Bless us, Lord. We look to you and give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.